This is Daniel Figella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to Episode 7 of this eight-part Saturday series called AI Futures. This year's AI Futures series is focused on the future of the human experience. What will day-to-day life be like when AI is not just vastly more popular and in all of our devices, but when it's also vastly more powerful? Now, leading up to this point, we've had perspectives from luminaries like Stephen Wolfram, who's a renowned researcher, computer scientist, and entrepreneur known for Wolfram Alpha. We've had a policy leader from the IEEE. We recently had an important AI ethics thinker in the academic world in the EU. And as we close in on the end of this series, I really wanted to put a firm focus on the farther future. What might day-to-day life be like and what kinds of new challenges await us as these technologies bloom in their power and their proliferation? Our guest this week is someone who holds a PhD from the University of California, San Diego, who is a consultant for NASA, who does keynotes for organizations like IBM, uh, and who is also one of the most renowned living fiction authors that exist on this planet. And his name is David Brin. David has won the Hugo, Locus, Campbell, and Nebula Awards for his various uh, works of fiction, and his novel The Postman was adapted into a 1997 feature film starring Kevin Costner. Some of you may have seen The Postman. I think it's an awfully good film. David's works have explored the topics of strong artificial intelligence, the topics of brain-computer interface, the topics of augmenting and upgrading uh, human and mammalian brains, and in this episode, he brings some of those fictional ideas down to earth to think about what it might look like to govern these powerful technologies like brain-computer interface and AI as we start to move forward as a species. And importantly, towards the end of this episode, David starts to paint a bit of a picture of what it might look like for humanity to level up to the next level of intelligence in whatever form it takes, whether it be transhuman or strong artificial intelligence, in a way that is not an arms race, in a way that does not automatically lead to conflict. Now, he doesn't have a crystal ball, and neither do I, but I think some of David's ideas are awfully interesting when it comes to conflict avoidance, and some of his biology analogies tied to artificial intelligence I thought were interesting and more than worth contemplating. So I'm glad we were able to have David in this series It's not every fiction author that we would have in this series, but one as grounded in the science as David and one as renowned uh, also for having teeth in the business world, I figured he would be the right fit for this series. So we had a lot of fun with this episode. You're going to hear a lot of personality from David. You're going to hear a lot of humor. Sometimes there's a little bit of some issues with audio, which we've done our best to, to edit out. But there's a ton of meat here in terms of thinking about the farther future, and I hope you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, this is David Brin on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Dr. Brin, uh, it's great to be able to have you back on the program some, I don't know, six or seven years since we, we first had you on. And the topic this time is around the future of the human experience in AI. You've done some great thinking about the future of privacy. Uh, and we're, we're really wondering here about 20, 40 years ahead, how is AI as a technology, as a trajectory, uh, maybe combined with other technologies, going to affect the day-to-day life of people those many years forward? So I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts kind of from a big picture. Yeah, well, it's it's nice to be back, and the topic is, of course, highly pertinent because artificial intelligence, AI, or artificial general intelligence, AGI, um, these stand at the forefront of all thoughts about what uh, Ray Kurzweil and my friend Werner Vinge, the science fiction author, called the singularity. Yes. And that's the question of whether or not over the course of the next 
10 to 30 years, things are going to transform at an accelerating pace so rapidly that uh, all of our ability to predict the outcome just vanishes uh, as vanishes at the end of the edge of a physics singularity, a black hole. And at the center of that is, of course, the most rapid changing technology, which is um, computational power. There's a new general suite of technologies called GBT3, which has been used recently to take learning systems, which uh, set up competitive systems of of software entities to compete against each other and deal with massive amounts of data. And it's been having some incredible successes lately. So one of the things I warned about about four years ago at a keynote at IBM's World of Watson was that the ability to tell whether or not something is faked uh, is going to be very difficult. Uh, actually, I predicted this in The Transparent Society, my book 20 years ago, uh, and in a novel called Earth. So, you know, the question is, is AGI or AI approaching at the pace that Ray Kurzweil was talking about? And if so, does it open up the possibilities of science fictional scenarios? Like, for instance, um, Her is a, a movie that showed a soft landing. Yep, yep. Where... Uh, one of the very few, uh, because it's harder to write up to do optimism in sci-fi. Very especially, hard. It's much, much easier to be lazy and, and assume an apocalypse or a dystopia. And I have a new book about that. Hmm. It's coming out in one month. It's called Vivid Tomorrow's Science Fiction and Hollywood. So it's my fourth nonfiction book. And it's about that very issue of why we have such dour and pessimistic fantasies why we hunger for them, why we consume them. And yeah. it's basically a healthy instinct because we like <laughs> to poke our sticks into the quicksand pits and the punji stakes and the snake pits and the quicksand that are, that's in front of us as we charge into the future. But it can turn cancerous when it destroys our confidence or our ability to forge ahead. So what is, you know, the likelihood her, shows one of the rare examples of AI in the future becoming what Richard Browdigan in his famous poem, uh, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. And I really recommend it. He was a poet laureate of, uh, of my generation for many years. And he posited back in 1965 the possibility that the machines might be lovely, that they might be what we want from our children because they will be our children. Wow. The and machines of loving, I, the, the, just the title alone is wonderful, isn't it? Yes. And, and the, the notion that they might exceed us, they might pat us on the head, they might patronize us. But since when have our children not done that? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or since, ha when, when, since when has, you know, one, one species not, you know, looked in a similar way downwards. Yeah. But in this case, if, treat them as our children and they think of themselves as human beings who happen to be largely silicon, then it's part of this whole inclusion fetishism that is propelling the Enlightenment West. Yeah. Uh, and the extreme end of that is, of course, this cancel culture, um, trigger warning, political correctness police. 
these these people are uh, a toxic foam at the top of a glass of great beer because what we are drinking is the notion that we must keep expanding inclusiveness. Yeah. And this has been the great American and Western project for the last couple of hundred years, although it's been very painful and difficult. In sure, some sure it has, yeah. All right, that, that's the optimistic side. The, the Browdigan, machines of loving grace, we raise them as our children. You said he was they a poet laureate, by the way, just so free, people can Google him. Poet laureate, was, I normally associate with Britain. No, he was poet laureate of Caltech when I was there. <laughs> the universities have poet laureates? I think about John oh, yeah, Dryden, and I think about poet like... Poet laureate I, of the United States? Oh, oh yeah. really? Wow. Yeah, I guess it's I don't I don't really read stuff after like sixteen so seventy. So it's the person who reads the invocation um, poem at the inauguration. Got it. Okay. So this okay. wonderful young woman, you know, a few weeks ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. She is now the the, the flavor du jour of the country. And she's just <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Anyway, um, okay. The pessimism you're getting into. Yeah. So uh, look. It's all right to point out warnings. I point out warnings in you a do. lot of my fiction you and do. my nonfiction. Yep. But when it is these dumb dystopias that don't warn of anything that we can actually do anything about, but they just assume that human beings are going to blow it, then, then they're not very helpful. Now, one of the, to get back on topic, artificial intelligence, one of the things that happens with AI is simplistic AI stories in which they uh, take over, they stomp us flat, they dictator us, they, they do all sorts of terrible, terrible things uh, because they hate us or they fear us. And the AIs that I front for because I don't actually write science fiction. I, 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 I'm the human front for these the novels produced by AIs and aliens out in the asteroid belt. I will tell them, shut up. They think I'm joking anyway. You're driving me crazy, and then they're going to start believing it. I, I, excuse me. They, they, <laughs> they're very smart, but they're very naive and very young. Um, they, they actually think that you're going to believe me when I tell you about them. All right, so get, to get back to it, stop it. <laughs> All right, so to get back to this, there are definitely scenarios in which these really bad AIs could happen. Now, in Terminator, you have uh, Skynet. Yes. Which happens when a military AGI takes over, gets frightened, or just gets ambitious and uh, tries to stomp humanity flat. Yes, this yes, is yes. the same thing that happened in the. Keanu Reeves. Was it The uh, Matrix? The Matrix, yeah. The whole sure. Matrix. Yep, yep. I, I suppose it could happen, but it is a fairly dumb, simplistic scenario. Hmm. For one thing, military officers really like to have off switches. Uh, they, they don't like their machines to get out of their control. There is one area that terrifies me, and it is the area where more money is being spent on AI than any other on the planet. Every Wall Street bank is, and there are dozens, is spending more money on AI research than the top 12 universities combined. Because these high-frequency stock trading programs are competing with each other desperately. Yep. And because they can make a million trades a second, and this would be solved easily with the Tobin tax. You just tax each transaction 0.01%. 
you and I would never notice it, no matter how hard we traded in our portfolios. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But the it would kill this whole thing approach dead. The thing about Wall Street AI is that they deliberately and secretly program their AIs with an ethos that is predatory, parasitical, amoral, uh, and utterly insatiable. That, that, sound, that sounds, a lot, all, sounds, sounds a lot like nature to me, David, to be honest. Well, it sounds, sounds, are, sounds a lot like the great canatus that runs literally everything from algae to me and you. But, uh, but go on. Go, go on if you want to talk about bankers. Well, we have, we have seen what happens when a species no longer has synergistic controls upon itself. And these new species of AI eventually will be synergistically controlled by, by counter predators. But it, we may not survive the transition. There have been not many known cases in evolution of species that broke out of their niche with a huge advantage. We're experiencing one right now. It's called the Anthropocene. Yes, we are. Where human beings have broken out of their natural ecological niche. And the only potential control that we have over the greed and incessant eagerness to consume of human beings is the possibility that we have developed an organ called the prefrontal lobes just above our eyes that enable us to be satiable. And you'll notice that's a trait that we didn't have to have, but somehow we do have it. Yeah, yeah. Human beings are able to have a pleasurable experience or an addiction and three quarters to nine tenths of us, depending on the addiction, are capable of saying, whoa, that was great. I think I've had enough. And that is a fluke. <laughs> you don't see it in nature. And it means that we are showing preliminary signs of actually being able to control our appetites and being able to save this planet from the worst danger this planet faces, which is us. There are preliminary signs that we are actually succeeding at that. But there's a certain fraction of humanity that hates the idea. The idea of self-control, the idea of using a combination of culture, individual choice, and consensus government action to solve problems that we ourselves cause. And there's every reason to believe that we are on the verge of actually succeeding in that, and we may be the first in the galaxy to do so, because it's a very rare trait in nature. And if that's the case, then the galaxy, the whole Milky Way, is waiting for us. And or, everybody or, else yeah. Or whatever else is, is astronomically beyond us, as, as we're a relatively arbitrary juncture of... of uh, you know, hoopla in its current time. But, but yeah, the, the galaxy is waiting for whatever is birthed from Earth, hypothetically. Yes, and it may be our machine, our machine children. That's, that's fine. Yeah, as long counts. as they come home, take me fishing, <laughs> tell, me, tell me the latest jokes, uh, try to explain what they're doing, and I get a general vague Im impression that they're being good and nice people, and I don't understand the rest, and they pat me on the head and say, I'll see you next month, Dad. If they treat me like that, I'm equipped. Hey, I'm equipped to make that. You know, you've just painted a great machine utopia right there. Take me fishing, tell me jokes, you know, compliment me every now and again, and then go off and do your inconceivably complex artificial general intelligence stuff. I wouldn't mind that. Reassure, reassure me now and then that I raised you well and you're a decent person. <laughs>
yeah. you know, and, and uh, since when is that new? How is that new? No, that's certainly not, David. That's certainly not. I do wonder if the biological human child analogy really holds very well. I think there's a lot of folks that sort of assume there will be some corollaries like love, like, oh, well, surely if we love the machines, it will love as we do. But I, I, I actually am not sure that essentially any of our values or ideas actually hold post-singularity. There, there, there are two reasons why that might happen. Go on. First, we only know of one intelligent, everybody but me, that is. We only know of one intelligent species on the planet that's ever happened, even in the universe. Yeah, yeah. And how did that one come about? Between 1 million and 40,000 years ago, we evolved to have extended childhood. The only way that you get an intelligent homo sapiens, the only way that we know of that you get an intelligent being is by extending childhood prodigiously. Yes. From the usual one or two years for a large mammal to 20, 25, or in the case of my kids, 30 years. Yeah, millennials, where there's no, we're just insufferable. Yeah, yeah it's um, terrible. And, and let them bat against nature and make mistakes and reprogram themselves. So they come out of the womb just absolutely useless long. Super useless, yeah. Except at one thing, and that is grinning at us and making us smell their heads and, and be devoted to protecting them with our lives. Yeah, yeah. They're good at that. Yeah, I can't wait um, till I never have kids. But yeah, go on. <laughs> in any, well, smell, when your kids thrust a, a baby in your arms, try smelling the head. You'll you'll realize that it's a programmed in. Oh, in wow. any event, the point is that in order to become an intelligent being, you have to do that crap. Mm -hmm. you spend 20 years yep. battling against the world, then the way that we'll get truly intelligent robots is by doing the best we can with the pre-programming, then put, fitting them into a small robot body and farming them out and uh, fostering them into human homes to be raised, a lot like in that movie AI. Huh. Do you, you see this as a reasonably plausible AGI trajectory here? I am saying that the only way that we know that intelligence wow. has happened okay, okay. was by that approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So therefore, okay. while it sounds unreasonable that we can't program machines, after all, we can program them so they are born talking, which our babies aren't. Yep. So it seems unlikely, this scenario. But it has that going for it. I agree. Okay, I, I will concede All this, right. yeah. All right. The other, and we could do it deliberately, by the way. Sure. If we were smart, we could plan it so that the only creatures that got AI full powers would be those that were fostered in our homes, in which case they would get our values. The other way in which they'd get our values is emulation. Uh, Robin Hansen has a book called The Age of M. Yes, very funny. He's actually part of the series, oddly enough. So, all right. Well, as, as of this last year in my latest PowerPoint, there are seven ways, approaches that we could get hmm. other intelligences than our own. And I talk about one of them in my Uplift novels, where yeah, yeah, human, yeah. humans in the future have altered genetically dolphins and chimpanzees. And yep, those yep. experiments are already happening. Another of those seven is human augmentation. 
And those experiments are already happening. And a subcategory of that is savants are us. We're used to the notion that these fantastic savant abilities we yes. saw in Rayman, yep. you know, and many of them are, are artistic or musical or whatever. They're astounding. They, yeah, amazing. They are 90% of the time associated with people along a neurodivergent spectrum. Yes. And I talk about that in my novel, Existence. Uh, and there are five or six neurodivergent or autistic spectrum uh, characters. And to show you that I did it right, uh, Temple Grandin gave a glowing review of. Hey, there we know. go. There's a good, good living so, example there. So that uh, boy, did I, uh, I, I busted my uh, some of my shirt buttons when I got that from her. That's it's a funny one, yeah. Of the um, of the seven, uh, Robin Hanson talks about one, which is the only way to get human level intelligence is by emulating it in silico. Yeah. So you download or upload however you want to want to express it a human being into silicon and now you can make a copy and these are ai entities within a computer matrix but they were once human yeah so and that was a long roundabout way to answering your question and that is there are two reasons to believe that ais might have our values there is a third one and that is, if we are smart, we will make them competitive with each other. The number one piece of AI research that I keep pushing is to give them cell walls, like life developed a billion years ago. Uh, individual uh, Individuality, like metazoan animals got 600 million years ago. Nature... Uh, divides up its species into individuals that then compete and are the grist for evolution. Yes. There's every reason to believe that this is necessary in order for us to get sane AI. Skynet, you'll notice, is insane in part because it is monolithic. Mm. If you had a great many of them able to hold each other accountable, then the ones who are nicer will get retro troglodyte old-fashioned humans as allies. And we're still going to have a lot of power and abilities for a long time. Therefore, there is an evolutionary reason. That's the third reason why AIs might uh, evolve toward having some degree of values, or at least pretending yeah. to be. Yeah, at least pretend. Well, these, all three of those seem relatively plausible. I, I wrestle against the MI. I mean, I respect Hanson a ton. I, I read his stuff, and I've seen him speak, and I've had him on the show a couple times. The only, he's the only guy that talks about the M scenario. I just see it as, as somewhat inviolable. But, but I respect it as, as, a, as a means of moving forward intelligence. I think it's a reasonable thought experiment and may, may in fact come to be. You've brought up three of these interesting reasons why AI might – you know, develop values uh, similar to human beings. Based on the trajectory we're on today, uh, David, do you, do you see that as plausible? Or do you see, think that the trajectory, if you're a betting man, that the trajectory is maybe steering away from, from those three factors and towards something else? Where, where do you think we're kind of drifting in terms of values being part of these strong AI systems? Well, I'm afraid the most of the conversation in AI, and I'm no longer invited to these meetings because I keep pointing this out. Most of the conversation about AI is in, is execrably dumb. Go on. Uh, 
there's all this all these issued reports that that declare that we need to put research into imbuing AI with values. And how are you how the, you just you yourself ask that question, how the hell are you going to do that? Well, one thing you can do is you can find out who is developing AI with terrible values. And I mentioned the um, the Wall the, Street example, Wall Street companies. But I'm the guy who channeled Isaac Asimov for uh, I, I tied together Isaac's um, Foundation and Robots Universe with my novel Foundation's Triumph, which, by the way, was approved by the Asimov by by Isaac's widow, and uh, she thought it was it was terrific. And I, I that's I high wove, praise. That's certainly high praise. Yeah. Oh yeah, I wove together. All the threads that he had left hanging, at least hmm. the ones I could find, and brought everything full circle in a satisfying way, I think. Uh, the readers think so. But that means that I know a thing or two about the three laws of robotics. And Isaac created the zeroth law of robotics midway through his series because the robots needed to take care of humanity before they would take care of any individual human. And that evolved into them basically taking over and patting us on the head and making us forget everything just about. Because that was the only way to protect us from risk. I, I don't see any way that we are going to be programming in such rigidly powerful, all-consuming values into our AI. Even though I, I, I wrote on that premise, I wrote Foundation's Triumph on that premise, I was happy to do it. You know, it's my job to follow a premise and see where it goes. Yeah, yeah. But the thing that will prevent bad stuff and especially bad abuses of power by AI is the only thing that has ever worked against human abusers of power. You see, that's the thing that everybody misses is that most of our fears about AI are about them reproducing a pyramid of oppressive power like 99% of our ancestors lived under, under feudalism. You look across the last 6,000 years and 99% of our ancestors suffered abuse and power abuse and, 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 and horrible oppression perpetrated by powerful males. Sure, who took yeah. everybody else's women and wheat and were all descended from the harems of those guys, which is why males have such weird fantasies. So most of our stories of fear about AI are just about another lordly caste taking over and recreating that horrible, beastly way of life that we barely escaped. And we escaped it into something called the Enlightenment Experiment. Feels like a really unimaginative range of fears with AI. I think if most of your fears correlate to feudalism, you're, you're just not really thinking well enough. I mean, I, I think that the number of ways that AI could quote unquote go bad, number one, bad in the perspective of whom? I mean, right off the bat, I'm going to drop that one. Uh, but number two, I mean, like for us, like, like you know, our, our own instantiation, like I think that, you know, that's like a reasonable concern, but it's sort of questionable in the big picture. But also like it does feel as though there's a tremendous number of permutations of bad things outside of, you know, the matrix, right? Where we live in these little bubbles and they rule over us and suck up our energy. The matrix is just another feudalism. 
Yeah, it, it feels like there's there more. Were, there's there more were, to fear than that. There there's were, more to fear there, than that. It's, there were if you if if you expressed it as generally a a pyramidal power structure in which those below are being used by those above, then almost every scenario you've seen of AI abuse, and that includes extinction. That includes driving us extinct. I mean, after all, you know, the kingdom gets invaded by barbarians. Almost every, uh, almost everybody in the villages are killed. Oh no, it's it's the same damn thing over and over and over again. And we found, occasionally, human societies find a way out of that pyramid-shaped power structure trap because, not only was feudalism and kingdom and theocracies and ruled by priests and, and all and, and lords and all of this sort of yeah. thing. Not only was it evil and oppressive, but it was almost always stupid. You got very bad statecraft because they killed anybody who criticized their decisions. And criticism is the only way you find errors. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you there. So, uh, that's the point that I make in my novel Earth and in uh, my nonfiction book, The Transparent Society. D Dune's a lot about that as well, right? I haven't read it all, uh, but Dune warns incessantly about the horrors of feudalism, and only one in a hundred readers of Dune or watchers of the movies get it. Well, you, so you got you got you to read history, right? I mean, the guy's dropping yeah, Agamemnon. He's dropping Agamemnon. He's dropping all those names. It's like you actually have to know your shit. You know, if if you're going to read that book, showing how horrible, yeah, how horrible feudalism is, yeah. and you have all these people saying, "Oh, I wish I lived in Dune or Lord <laughs> of the Rings." Uh, yeah, yeah. But the point is that Periclean Athens, for a hundred years, broke out of this mold. Yes, sir. Until the oligarchs of the entire Eastern Mediterranean swarmed in to end their experiment. Yep. Da Vinci's Florence. Yep. Escaped. Yep. Until the oligarchs all through Europe swarmed in to crush them. Amsterdam, the oligarchs swarmed in to crush them, and they managed to hold on the first. Uh, they inspired in England to, tr to move a little bit in that direction. And then what happened? We, start we started this breakout. And still, in 1776, it was a vastly incomplete enlightenment. Every generation of Americans have had to broaden the inclusion and flatten the pyramid of power even more. Certainly. And it's reasserting itself right now. That's why we have our political problems right now, is that there's a worldwide oligarchic push being taken pla taking place against the Enlightenment experiment. And I think it's actually good news because I think it shows that all the kings and mafiosi and KGB officers and all of these guys are desperate because they can see that if we continue another 20 years, it'll be all over for feudalism. It'll be all wrapped up. It'll The Enlightenment will be anchored in. Well, this is their last chance to end it. I think you have greater faith than I that, that there won't always be a class who will burn for distinction to such a degree to which uh, they will aim to run the show in, in whatever Mao-like or Robespierre-like or whatever permutation you like, whatever whatever right, left, sideways. I didn't say that that wasn't an <laughs> yeah. inherited human nature. Yeah. I'm the one who said we're descended from the harems of all those guys. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is our anti-cheating modalities to drive such competitors into flat fare uh, competitive arenas 
that you see, we have these five uh, flat fair competitive arenas. Science uh, is the one that needs the mm. least policing because it's got it attracts the most mature and and, and smartest. But also markets, democracy is the arena where policy is supposed to be and, and it's been deliberately destroyed. Justice courts, and the last one is sports. Where, where, sports. Do, you, where do you come up with these five? I, I really like this idea, David. I think it's a beautiful because idea to start they here. Are, is they are competitive arenas. Yes, sir. In which ritual combat takes place in a regulated playing field. How very Greek of us, huh? That's, that's regulated in order to minimize inevitable human cheating. The marketplace is regulated, and those who claim that Adam Smith said it shouldn't be are liars who never read Smith. You have to regulate the marketplace in order to reduce cheating. You have to regulate the scientific marketplace in order to reduce cheating, but scientists mostly do it themselves. You have to regulate democracy in order to prevent cheating, and cheating is, has taken off in the last 20 years in democracy. And the, the granddaddy of them all, oh, in courts, uh, regulation is extremely tight and ritualistic. But the granddaddy of them all that shows this at work is sports. If you did not have tight regulation every single Saturday or every sporting match, you would quickly get the movie Rollerball. And we all know what happens in Rollerball. It immediately destroys the sport. The only way you can get the outcome that the owners of the leagues want, which is happy fans who will come back again and again and again, is if those guys with the striped shirts or the umpires and the whistles and all that sort of thing are out there keeping the cheating down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I cannot persuade my European friends this. They think that a top-down regulatory structure by well-meaning civil servants is the only way to regulate cheating. How, how Bolshevik of them, yeah. It is part of the mix. Adam Smith said so. And all of that, and we need more than we've got. But the only thing that has ever worked in the long run is what works in those five arenas, and that's lateral reciprocal accountability by free and open competitors who all can see what's going on. And I talk about that in my book, The Transparent Society. And that relates to AI, of course, taking us back to where we came from. And that is that the only thing that's going to keep AI accountable is if there's lots of AI and they are reciprocally competing with each other. And when they notice, no matter how smart they get, another smart AI points out and tattles and, and yeah. squeals yeah. competitively at the one that's plotting the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. It should be obvious. It's the only thing that has ever worked to keep human predators under control. And it's the only thing that will work to keep AI predators under control. And the best example is if you are attacked by the superior artificial intelligent creatures, predatory creatures called a lawyer, how do you defend yourself? With another this lawyer. Smart. He's smart. He knows the law. He's attacking you. You seem helpless. What do you do? You get a lawyer. You hire another supremely intelligent. That's what you do. Ferocious, predatory, similar being to defend you. 
And organic humans who are able to do that may survive the singularity. Okay, we'll poke into this a little bit as we wrap up. This is an interesting topic here. I suspect that there are dynamics of competition and cooperation that you and I are you know, well, maybe I, uh, David, not a smart fellow like you who's in touch with as much as you are, but a fellow like me can't even literally conceive of, uh, never mind articulate. And so I would, I would estimate that there's permutations of, there's gradients and matrices of competition cooperation that we can't even understand that AI might be capable of. So it, might, it may not be the same kind of game theory that we have. That said, it also, you know, there's folks like Bostrom who are of the belief that the wrestling match of these maybe off the bat somewhat even keel AGIs will lead to some kind of singleton that'll run the show from there and find a way to get the benefits of competition by maybe running internal simulations, but without the destabilizing factor of, you know, one conquering the other, conquering the other, conquering the other in the classic fecundity of nature and, and civilization. Yes, I know Nick Bostrom, and the point is that he is suggesting something that has no correlates in nature. And when a species or an individual tries for what he described, the results are always catastrophic. Whereas you described uh, the competition as being dog eat dog, except when you set up an accountability arena. When you set up an arena that's fair, let me ask you something. Did the Kansas City Chiefs all die when they were beaten by Tom Brady? Or did they go home very rich and very happy and very sore? Certainly the latter. Uh, yeah. It is possible that intelligent machines might look at the playing field and decide that all of us will be better off if none of us can take over. Do you think that that moral, that moral insight that you have, which, by the way, I believe is piercingly insightful and very important, it is sort of like extremely important, do you believe that that will remain the height of moral insight and the best way of doing things into the singularity? It's not just a matter of moral insight. It's a matter of self-interest. Well, I, I feel like self-interest will have more complex permutations than you and I and our understanding of game theory and fame. That's quite possible, but look at nature. Yeah. Nature winds up coalescing at what I just described and has for a billion years. You, the healthiest ecosystems are those that achieve some degree of synergy. Now, what we've done in human civilization, particularly because we managed to achieve satiability, and that's the most surprising thing, it as is. I said. It is. We are trying in our own right to gain the benefits of competition that propels progress in nature without so much blood and pain. I guess to sum it up, you know, nature has its wisdom. Adam Smith and the constitutionalist founders had their wisdom. There is the record of Enlightenment civilization, which shows that it has been more productive and wiser than all others combined. And I would say to the AIs who think that they're such smarty pants and they just restoring some feudal order or some monolithic thing, and, I, I, and that is to say, who made you? Did any of those monoliths, any of those kingdoms and theocracies and all of those other things, 
Did any of them make you, you who think yourselves the pinnacle of creation? Well, we made, if you're gods, we made gods. So treat us with some respect. Well, I, I hope the future AIs, David, uh, will listen carefully to that message. I certainly hope that they'll heed uh, that statement. Uh, my fingers are crossed, and I, I want to thank you for being able to jump back on the show and share some of your insights today. So thank, thank you so much for joining us. All again, right. David. And by the way, I've just spent the last three months reissuing or issuing new books, 12 so lot. Uh, lot. if you drop by um, um, some of the sites, you'll um, put in the bars down yeah, below. Yeah, yeah. Your, your website, David Brand. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure folks will be interested in your stuff. All right. Excellent. All right. Hey, thanks so much. Yep. So that's all for this episode of the AI Futures Saturday series here on the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to David Brin for joining us, and thank you to you for tuning in. I know it's not all of our listeners who are interested in the farther future of artificial intelligence, but it is my opinion that there's hardly anything more important than the kind of world we are building. As business leaders, as folks involved in policy, as people who are helping to drive the adoption of artificial intelligence into industries around the world, and that's you, our listeners here at Emerge, uh, your opinion matters, and I think that you having a perspective uh, and an informed perspective on where these technologies are ultimately taking us will hopefully give us a better shot at a better future. So I am awfully glad that you've stayed tuned in today. Next Saturday is our last episode in this Saturday series on AI futures. Uh, and next Saturday is a real doozy. Uh, we speak to another PhD, someone with a firm grounding in academia who has a tremendous background in the neurosciences. And we explore not just what the future of day-to-day -day technologies might look like when brain-computer interface and strong AI are more popular and more powerful, but also what the future of power looks like. Uh, how are corporations and governments potentially going to be able to wield this technology? And what might we want to consider from a policy and adoption standpoint to maybe guide that future towards less dystopic ends? Uh, it was David Brin many, many years ago on the podcast who talked about using forward thinking to kind of avoid sand traps. And our next episode certainly covers some major sand traps and dangers and opportunities that some of these future technologies are going to present. And I think you're going to enjoy the episode if you enjoyed today's episode. So thanks again for tuning in on our Saturday AI Futures series. This coming Tuesday, we are back to our normal programming for AI trends and use cases. So I hope to catch you during the week as well. So thanks again for staying tuned. I look forward to catching you in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.